Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 verses 1 through 7 will be our text this morning. Please give attention to God's holy word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about twelve men in all. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage to understand, and so I pray uh, that you would uh, be our teacher this morning. Uh, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say to us. Help us to measure ourselves um, and um, see whether we have the Holy Spirit, whether we are believers in our Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. When people learn that I'm a pastor, they automatically assume that I am a Methodist pastor. I don't think that I particularly look like a Methodist uh, pastor, but my name sounds like it. Uh, John Wesley, of course, was the founder of the Methodist Church. And my name is Wesley, and this is the curse that I live with. You know, I've even thought about this, that, you know, in the generations that come along after me are going to look at my gravestone, see my my, uh, name, and made me think that I was a Methodist pastor and so I think I'm going to have it on my gravestone he was named after John Wesley but he preached like John Knox the reason I'm talking about John Wesley is I want to open this sermon this morning with the story of John Wesley's conversion I think his experience will help us to understand the experience of these 12 uh, men that we meet here in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 7 John Wesley was born in England in 1703 he was the 15th of 19 children. His dad and his granddad were pastors, and so they pushed him to become a pastor. He went to Oxford University with his brother Charles, and of course as we know Charles Wesley uh, by a number of the hymns that are included in our hymnal. Uh, While there, his classmate, George Whitfield, became his good friend. We know George Whitfield as being uh, the great evangelist uh, up and down the eastern seaboard during the Great Awakening. And 
John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield started a club uh, on the Oxford campus where they were studying. And in this club, they fasted twice a week. They studied the Greek New Testament. They prayed for long periods of time. They also visited the imprisoned and the sick uh, every week. And they called their meeting or their club the Holy Club. After graduation, John Wesley uh, became a pastor and eventually became a missionary to Indians uh, living in Georgia, in the colony of Georgia. In fact, uh, part of his ministry was on St. Simon's Island. Um, Mandy, my wife, grew up on St. Simon's Island, uh, very near to where John Wesley preached. Uh, But Wesley was a complete and utter failure as a missionary. He became despondent about his ministry, and so he finally boarded a ship to return to London. While he was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on this uh, on this ship, a, a great storm blew up, and um, there were a group of Christians, Moravian Christians, uh, there on the on the boat with him, and uh, John Wesley. Uh, was fearing greatly that he was going to lose his his life. But he observed these Moravian Christians and in the middle of the storm they were singing hymns of praise to God because of God's glory and His greatness. And this bothered Wesley greatly that they could have such peace in the middle of the storm while he had none. And so after he got back to London, he began attending church with these Moravian Christians. And while he was in church, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they began reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And the long story short is that John Wesley, in hearing about the grace of God... um, finally became a Christian and this was long after he had gone to seminary long after he had become a pastor long after he had spent time as a missionary and we're going to return to John Wesley at the end of the sermon this passage here in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 7 has quite has caused quite a bit of mischief in many churches. Specifically, people have taken this passage to be normative for the typical Christian experience. In other words, um, what is taught here from time to time is that people become Christians, but that at a later point in their life, They must have this experience of speaking in tongues and prophesying. And that if somehow you don't have this complete experience of of becoming a Christian and later speaking in tongues and prophesying, that you are somehow incomplete um, in your walk with Christ. 
And so verse 6 becomes the verse that uh, many, that most people focus on uh, in looking at this passage. And so verse 6 says, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. I've had friends who were made to feel that they did not possess the Holy Spirit if they did not speak in tongues and prophesy as these twelve men did here in Acts chapter 19. But in order to understand this passage correctly, we need to do a little bit of investigative work. Uh, We need to see verse 6 really in light of the discussion in verses 2 through 5. Verse 6 is not just a standalone verse um, teaching us what should be normative in the Christian life. Rather, verse 6 can only be properly understood within the context of verses 2 through 5. So in verse 2, Paul asks a rather bizarre question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I say that's a bizarre question because everywhere in Paul's writings, Paul takes it for granted that a believer by definition has received the Holy Spirit. So we read in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord and really mean it. And that's my commentary on that passage. But no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he tells the Thessalonians, he's reassuring them that they are believers. And he says, no, I'm sorry, he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and, in, and with full conviction. And I could go on and on listing verse after verse where the Apostle Paul says that a Christian, by definition, has the Holy Spirit. So can you see why this question is so bizarre that he would ask in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? With this in mind, it makes no sense Um for Paul to be asking them this question about receiving the Holy Spirit unless they believed. Um, Unless, and I think this is important, unless Paul is using John the Baptist's own teaching to show these twelve disciples of John the Baptist that they have really misunderstood John's teaching. I know we've got a few people in here, some of the kids, even Cheryl Eggert, who practices some judo. And uh, one of the, I think they may be able to correct me, but I think the whole premise is that you use your opponent's momentum against them. Um, well, that's what John, that's what Paul is doing with these 12 with these uh, 12 men who are John the Baptist's disciples. He's using their momentum against them. He is saying, okay, you're followers of John the Baptist? Well, let's find out how closely you are following his message. 
Um, and really what he's saying is you've, you've misunderstood the whole import of John the, John the Baptist's teaching. And you know who, I, who John the Baptist is, right? Uh, he came on the scene just before Jesus began his public ministry. He lived in the wilderness area of Judah. Um, his clothes were made of camel hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. He ate um, locusts and wild honey. In other words, he was not marching to the same beat that everybody else was marching to. He was, he was, he was very different. And he preached against the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and he proclaimed that the Messiah's coming was indeed very near. And when Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist announced that Jesus was the Messiah. Or to quote John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when Jesus walked up. And so John the Baptist, is, his, the whole of his preaching is repent because the Messiah is coming. In fact, when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist said, He is here. Repent of your sins because the, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God is here and He has come to take away your sins. And all who believed John's message were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Hence his title. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Well, apparently these twelve men that Paul met in Ephesus uh, had become enamored with John's lifestyle and persona. Um, you know, this was a guy to take notice of. You know, when they when they were in Judah, you know, it says that thousands were coming from Jerusalem and from all over Judea to uh, to hear John the Baptist. But these 12 men completely miss John the Baptist's message. He was, a prof- he was undoubtedly a charismatic figure. And you will remember that he was, um, while Jesus was alive, he was beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch. And I'm sure his martyrdom only added uh, to the zeal of John's disciples. And I assume, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I assume that, that the Apostle Paul was able to, to surmise that these twelve men, uh, even though he's meeting them in Ephesus, were John's disciples. Because I think as John's disciples, they probably dressed like John the Baptist, probably ate like John the Baptist. So, you know, these twelve men walking around in camel hair, uh, outfits and leather belts, eating locusts. Um, well, that would that would uh, tend to clue you in that that um, they were John the Baptist followers. But Paul started talking with them and found out that they, even though they purported to follow John, they were certainly not following his message uh, because John's message was. The Messiah is here, and He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or to quote from Matthew 3.11, to quote from John the Baptist. um, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so I see Paul's bizarre question to these twelve men as really a sharp rebuke. 
He's saying, have you been baptized? Uh, Or did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, the apostle, I mean, John the Baptist is talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, we don't, we have never even heard of the Holy Spirit. See that? They did not understand John the Baptist's message. Um, John the Baptist said believers would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So by asking them if they had received the Holy Spirit... Paul is calling into question whether they are really believers. And I see uh, Paul's statement in verse 4 in the same vein. Again, Paul is rebuking them. Listen to verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Well, they apparently haven't heard of Jesus either. Even though John the Baptist is preaching about the Holy Spirit, preaching about Jesus, they seem ignorant of of the whole of John the Baptist's message. And that's why it leads me to think that they are just caught up with um, with with or enamored with John the Baptist's lifestyle and and uh, his persona rather than than his teaching. In other words, Paul is telling them that the message that John the Baptist preached centered on Jesus. So he's asking them in verse four, "Why are you following John the Baptist?" When John the Baptist told you to be following Jesus. Does that make sense? And I think this is the way to understand um, this passage. In fact, uh, I think verse 5 confirms it. Um, That Paul's rebuke hit the mark because what do these men begin doing? Do they double down and they're following John the Baptist? No. It says in verse 5, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, These twelve men realized that to be a true follower of John the Baptist, they must become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now I know you already know this. Uh, You've heard me say it week after week after week. Yet it is so fundamental that I must say it again now. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. There is nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. All you can do is entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. These twelve disciples devoted themselves very religiously to John the Baptist. And yet they miss the Savior. I pray that none of you and being here in church this morning, missed the Savior, Jesus Christ. They were, these men were very religious and very sincere in their devotion. But they were not saved until they placed their, placed their trust, not in John the Baptist, but in Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this passage of Scripture? How does it have application to our lives? 
First of all, I hope it is abundantly clear that becoming a Christian is not a two-stage event where you believe in Jesus and become saved at one point and receive the Holy Spirit at some later point. That is false. It is not a two-stage event. You received the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, you could not become a Christian. That's the point of this passage. The fact that they spoke in tongues and prophesied demonstrated conclusively that they had become Christians. It wasn't an add-on to their faith. Because their faith was non-existent. Because they had never entrusted themselves to the Savior, Jesus Christ. These, these twelve men also, as, because the question is, well, what's happening here with them speaking in tongues? Why would they speak in tongues? Why would they prophesy? Why would Paul feel the need to lay his hands on them? I think these twelve men were living between the times. They were following the John. They were following John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ. But they had not crossed the bridge over into the New Testament because they had not yet believed in Jesus Christ. And once they believed uh, in Jesus Christ, they received the Holy Spirit, and then God used their speaking in tongues and their prophesying to signify that they had indeed crossed the bridge into the New Testament. That their faith in Jesus Christ was real. That John the Baptist is an insufficient Savior. That the only sufficient Savior is Jesus Christ. And it could be, and again, this is pure conjecture, speculation on my part, maybe that the Apostle Paul met these twelve men because these men were hanging around the church in Ephesus. Because there was a church that had begun to grow. Remember, Apollos um, had moved to Ephesus. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla were there, and they had taught Apollos, and Apollos had been preaching the gospel, uh, but he had since moved on to Corinth. And so a little church had sprung up in Ephesus and remember a couple of weeks back um, how Paul came to Ephesus and then he left he went to Jerusalem well now what he's done is he's traveled um, up to Antioch in Syria and then around through Asia Minor and made a beeline through Asia Minor back down to the uh, southwest uh, in order to uh, get back to Ephesus because he had wanted to be there so badly. And so maybe it's that these 12 men were hanging around the church and that in a church they were, I would assume, smaller than, than our own congregation. And you have 12 men walking around in camel hair and eating locusts. Well, they're going to have some influence. They're going to cause quite a little stir in, in a congregation, and especially in a small congregation. So it may be that this outward sign of speaking in tongues and prophesying uh, was to help the, the whole church receive them into the full membership. I don't know. Again, that's speculation on my part. Um, but So I, I can't say for certain why they are mentioned as speaking in tongues while others are not. As you move through the book of Acts, there's only four times that we see people speaking in tongues. We have in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and uh, 
the 12 apostles plus the 120 believers. Uh, they spoke in tongues to show that uh, Joel's prophecy was indeed true and that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. And then in Acts chapter 8, when Philip went and preached the, 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 the gospel in, in Samaria, all these Samaritans start coming to Christ. Paul and, and Peter go up to Samaria. They find out, hey, God has poured out His Spirit on these Samaritans and they've become Christians. They prayed and they and, and uh, laid hands on them and sure enough, God had poured out His Spirit on them. They had received the gospel. How do they know? Because these Samaritans start speaking in tongues. Move on to Acts chapter 10. Paul travels to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was neither Jewish nor a Samaritan. Rather, he was um, a Gentile. And uh, just listen to to uh, Peter's account as he's telling the um, as he travels back to Jerusalem and gives an account of his preaching to these Gentiles. He says in chapter eleven. Um, verse 15 and as I begin to speak the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning and I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who was I that it could stand in God's way when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads unto life. How is the church so certain? God gave them that accompanying sign of speaking in tongues. But as for what's going on here in Acts 19, and I said, the, the best I can do is speculate a little bit, so I'm, I'm not completely sure. In order to answer that question, we need to be able to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, and uh, look at the whole issue of tongues, which I'm not able to, uh, to do this morning. But I hope you will see that this experience certainly for these 12 men was um, something that did not happen in a two-stage fashion. Rather, it was a it was to signify that they had become believers in Jesus Christ. Um, I also don't believe that this is an experience. I don't believe this is normative. I don't believe that everyone who um, becomes a Christian should be speaking in tongues. In fact, even in Acts, the the great majority of those who became believers, even in Acts, in the early stages of the church, did not speak in tongues, as best we can tell. Uh, thousands, 3,000 became believers on the day of Pentecost. Those 3,000, it doesn't say that they spoke in tongues. Remember the man from who was uh, born lame in Acts um, 3, 3 and 4? He became a Christian. He doesn't speak in tongues. He jumps up and starts praising God. Uh, then 2,000 people became believers after that. Nothing said of them speaking in tongues. Uh, even individuals, um, like, like the man born, uh, that was born lame, or the Philippian jailer, or Phoebe, or others. It doesn't say that. And so, um, for people to say that this is normative, that you must speak in tongues, that you must prophesy, 
in order for you to have any assurance that you were a Christian. It's a false notion altogether. Um, so then, everyone uh, who does become a believer receives the Holy Spirit. Uh, without Him, you are not a Christian. So then the question becomes, and this will be uh, my conclusion, is what are the outward signs that you have received the Holy Spirit? If the outward signs for these men were that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied, what are the outward signs for you? How can you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Well, I gave a few signs earlier in the sermon when I quoted from Paul. Um, and then we read uh, about other signs in our responsive reading. So I quoted from the Apostle Paul that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have received the Holy Spirit. So that's the first question. As I ask you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, are you a believer? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? That's the first outward sign. Uh, and then the second, the, the, the other signs that follow are the, the fruits of the Spirit. The signs of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But here's the rub. John Wesley, long before he became a Christian, talked a lot about Jesus. And he practiced great self-discipline as a founding member of the Holy Club. He worked really hard to implant the fruits of the Spirit into his life and habits. But when he arrived on the mission field, he found that he was severely lacking. And when he was caught in that storm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, he found that all his self-discipline and all his efforts at implanting these fruits of the Spirit into his life were, well, fruitless. He found that he did not have the Holy Spirit, that he had stapled some of the fruits of the Spirit into his life, that they were not, out, that they were not naturally growing from within him. And he found that he was not a believer. When you belong to Jesus Christ and His Spirit dwells in you, then the fruits of the Spirit naturally begin blossoming in your life. And even your self-control, and you are to have self-control as a Christian, even your self-discipline, and you are to have self-discipline as a Christian. Uh, was it First or Second Timothy uh, chapter 1? Uh, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of, of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So you are to have these things. But even those things that you have are really the God, uh, God the Holy Spirit, uh, giving you those fruits. Those fruits of self-control, self-discipline, that allow you or help you to, to grow other fruits of the Spirit, they themselves or come from the spirit of the spirit's work in your life. John Wesley went for years trying to do for himself what only God could do. 
So I must ask you this morning, have you received the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Do you know His power? Is is His Spirit producing fruits in your life? Christianity is inescapably experiential. Christianity Christianity cannot be reduced to a moral system or to a set of religious uh, rituals. Christianity is never simply a way of life. Christianity is having God the Holy Spirit in you because you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. John Wesley was able to do all the religious and moral stuff for many years without the Spirit before it all began falling apart. And he knew then when things started falling apart that he needed the Spirit because he had never really trusted in Jesus Christ. Where is your faith? I pray that it's in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, the distinguishing mark of being a believer in Jesus Christ is indeed possessing the third person of the Trinity, God Himself, God the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to measure ourselves and find out whether He is it alive in us and whether we are living in Him help us to test ourselves and find whether our faith is genuine whether our fruit of the Spirit is real and naturally born out of the overflow of our love for Jesus and His power at work within us we pray in, his, in Jesus name Amen